20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm David A. Bradbury. And this is 20-Minute History. On today's episode, for hundreds of years, our greatest thinkers believed that the beauty of nature, the miracle of life, the complexity of the animal kingdom could only be attributable to the work of God. And then, in 1858, a true scientific visionary formulated a new theory for how living species could be created entirely by natural processes, thus revolutionizing the field of biology. Now, what if I told you that I'm not talking about Charles Darwin? This is Season 1, Episode 2. Let's jump right in. It's not uncommon these days to hear Christians defend their faith from claims that it's archaic, outdated, and incompatible with modern science by appealing to influential men of science from our past. Sir Isaac Newton, Galileo Galilei, Antoine Lavoisier, these pioneers of their respective practices were all rigorous men of science as well as devout Christians, who saw the mission of their work as striving for a better understanding of the mechanisms of God's creation. For what it's worth, these claims are accurate. In fact, prior to the publication of Darwin's book on the origin of species in 1859, most scientists were creationists. People who, according to a definition from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, believe in a god who is the, quote, absolute creator of heaven and earth, out of nothing, by an act of free will. This is partially because, no matter how hard they searched, they simply couldn't find a more suitable theory that described how nature in all its apparent randomness could produce living things that were so irreducibly complex. Therefore, they reasoned, the divine explanation is the most logical. In Darwin's day, the most famous defense of this idea belonged to William Paley. Paley was a British philosopher who, in his book Natural Theology, devised a popular version of the teleological argument, also known as the argument from design, which we now know today as the watchmaker argument. Here's a brief version of it in Paley's words, quote, If I stumbled upon a stone and asked how it came to be there, it would be difficult to show that the answer, it has lain there forever, is absurd. Yet this is not true if the stone were to be a watch. 
essentially, Paley argues that you just kind of know intuitively like it's a watch it's very complex obviously nature couldn't have created that a conscious agent had to have made it so that has to be the case with life and god right well charles darwin disagreed and this is the part in our story that your biology teacher probably already told you about but just in case here's a quick recap Darwin took a voyage on the HMS Beagle, studied Galapagos finches, and eventually returned home thinking that all of his finches were variations on the same species. But then ornithologist John Gold informed him that all the specimens he returned with were different species. Puzzled, Darwin concluded that the only way this was possible was if the birds had somehow naturally adapted to their new environment. Thus, Darwin came up with a branching theory of evolution by natural selection, bada bing, bada boom. And that is basically true, but there is one significant catch in this story. Darwin's voyage lasted from 1831 to 1836, and as far as our records show, Darwin first formulated an early version of the theory in 1837. But On the Origin of Species wasn't written until 1859, 22 years later. Why did Darwin take so long? Well, according to Dr. Michael Rose, there are a couple of reasons for this. Now, clearly Darwin knew that he had an absolutely revolutionary hypothesis on his hands, and perhaps he was afraid that his theory would not be well received. But that wasn't the only reason, and it seems that more importantly, although Darwin had come up with the idea of natural selection, he didn't yet have a cogent theory as to how those adaptations were passed on, and he wanted to hold off on publishing until he did. As a side note, the best he could come up with was an inheritance theory called pangenesis, which is kind of outside the scope of this episode to talk about, but suffice it to say it was shot down and no one really cared about it, especially after the development of Mendelian genetics. Kind of too bad, but nevertheless, Darwin decided to wait. And this is where we should insert the story of Alfred Russell Wallace. Unlike his contemporary Darwin, Wallace wasn't exactly born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Rather, he was born in 1823 to middle-class parents in England and was one of nine children in his household. Nevertheless, he completed school and proceeded to learn a number of skills and crafts, including trigonometry, chemistry, mechanics, records indicate that he was apprenticed to a watchmaker for a little bit, I know, go figure. And finally, Wallace worked for his brother William as a land surveyor, out of which he developed a distinct passion for natural history, biology, biogeography, and finally, botany. And out of all of his passions, that last one was by far his greatest, as according to Barbara G. Bettle, one of the preeminent scholars on Wallace, he excitedly purchased a copy of John Lindley's The Elements of Botany just one year after publishing his first paper on the subject. But to his dismay, Lindley had left British varieties of plants out of the textbook. Ah, but no matter, Wallace probably said, as he set about annotating the textbook with his own findings so that it would be more complete. He truly was the biological half-blood prince. And of course, Wallace was both intrigued and inspired by Darwin's book Voyage of the Beagle, along with other accounts of similar expeditions. So that got Wallace and his friend and fellow naturalist Henry Walter Bates thinking about their own expedition to the Amazon jungle. It wouldn't be easy, and they would have to fund it themselves, but Bates encouraged Wallace with the promise of revenue from selling both the specimens they would find and the books that they would inevitably write about their voyage. And as if those weren't reasons enough to make the journey happen, Wallace himself had a third reason, which he detailed to Bates in a letter just prior to their departure. 
Apparently, the 25-year-old naturalist had grown a bit bored with just collecting specimens and had begun to wonder about all the plants and animals he had studied, about the natural variations they had acquired, and about how such variations came about. Wallace wanted to know, how do species originate? And in that manner, they left for the Amazon River in 1848. Wallace himself spent four years there, Bates, 11. Though his buddy's journey was quite profitable, Wallace's was not so much. Unfortunately, a fire on ship during his return voyage destroyed most of his collection and forced him to write his book entirely from memory. And on top of it all, Wallace's journey in South America had still not led him to the discovery of the mechanism of organic evolution. On essentially all accounts, Wallace's trip was an unfortunate failure. Hold on, I'm not finished. So, partially to make up for the financial losses of the first journey, and partially to keep chasing the origin of species, Wallace embarked on a second and historically much more important trip in 1854. The destination this time? The Malayan Peninsula. Hooray! The circumstances of Wallace's second journey were somewhat similar to the first. He traveled alone for most of the journey, his travels depended much on weather conditions and terrain, he spent a lot of time with the locals and learning native languages, and he collected many different specimens. However, this expedition was by far more fruitful than the last. He spent more than eight years in Indonesia, and by 1855, Wallace was convinced that living creatures evolve. In fact, he was so confident that he published a paper that same year titled On the Law Which Has Regulated the Introduction of New Species. Of course, Wallace hadn't quite yet figured out how that happened. But then one day in 1858, it just kind of hit him. Sounds cheesy, right? Well, I've done my research, and apparently neither I nor anyone else who has written about this subject knows how to put it any differently. Because supposedly Wallace caught malaria in 1858, and during a fever dream he finally stumbled across the mechanism of natural selection. Which I know, I wish my fever dreams resulted in my formulating a fundamental scientific theory too, but anyways. As soon as he had recovered, he wrote a new paper proclaiming his findings and sent it along with a letter to a British naturalist and somewhat of a mentor for peer review. That mentor, as I'm sure you could have guessed, was Charles Darwin. Oh boy. Darwin was in quite a pickle, and the best he could do was reach out to scientist Charles Lyell for help. With his consultation, the two decided that Wallace and Darwin's joint findings would be presented as a paper to the Linnaean Society that year. Wallace was not consulted during this process. Darwin then went on to publish his famous book in 1859, not including the genetic theory that he had hoped to formulate, and from there on, Darwin's name was immortalized in the history books. Wallace was understandably disappointed, but still a good sport about the whole thing, generally recognizing that Darwin, having discovered evolution first, had a right to the theory. But still, the fact that most people have never heard of him is kind of sad. Because Wallace didn't die until 1913, and in the 55 years of his life after he independently discovered evolution, he proved that he had a lot more to contribute to science at large. 
Most of his contributions are not surprisingly in the field of naturalism and evolution specifically, the most significant of which is an idea called reinforcement which he formulated in 1889. Basically, the theory proposes that natural selection leads to what's called reproductive isolation to discourage interbreeding of two species that would produce a weak hybrid. For an example, take the mule. But Wallace's branch is extended even further than that. He wrote more scientific papers on glaciation, exobiology, and zoogeography. He also wrote political papers advocating for a minimum wage, suggesting increased rates of pay for working overtime, debunking eugenics, and many, many more. Alfred Russell Wallace seemed to have wrote until not a single thought in his head went unexpressed. And with all this in mind, I simply can't help but wonder what would have happened if Wallace had just sent his paper to the Linnaean Society in the first place. Would he have received due credit for his contributions to evolution? Would he have achieved fame and notoriety on top of being well regarded in his field of study? Would we have even learned Darwin's name in the first place? Well, all we can do is speculate. For better or worse, the co-discoverer of evolution by natural selection has faded into historical obscurity. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of 20 Minute History. If you liked it, then please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating. You can also check us out on social media if you're looking for more content, and I'll be on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 20MINHistory. Just like last time, I'd like to extend a very special thank you to the authors whose works influenced this episode. Barbara G. Bettle, Michael Rose, and Charles H. Smith guided my writing about Wallace himself, while the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and William Paley helped my understanding of creationism. Don't forget to tune in next week when we're taking a look at something completely unthinkable during Shakespeare's time. A woman on stage. But until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning lest you-know-what repeats itself. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.